Good morning, church. Again, if you're visiting here, I want to uh, say good morning to you. Welcome and uh, dress in layers when you come. If you come back, dress. We've learned that uh, one never knows what the temperature will be when you come to church. So uh, dress in layers. That way you can uh, take on or, or take off or put on layers depending on your own temperature needs, right? Which is kind of self-adjust temperature uh, around here. So. We're going to be in the, the book of Titus today, Paul's letter uh, to Titus. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them there uh, to Titus. It's right after 2 Timothy, where we've been over the last number of weeks. If you didn't bring a Bible, we can remedy that. Uh, we have them in the back for your viewing pleasure, for you to read along. Just raise your hand so we know who might need one. And we encourage you to follow along so that you can see that what's being talked about is right there in God's Word, not just one pastor's idea or opinion. So we want you to know that what you're hearing this morning is not the Word of man, but it's the Word of God. And that carries a little more weight than the Word of man, doesn't it? People have their opinions and, and have their ideas and have their theories, but God has His Word, and it endures forever. Okay, let's pray, and we'll get into the book of Titus. Father, here we are, uh, singing, Lord, with our mouths about loving you and about your love for us, recognizing that there's no contradiction between uh, being uh, strong and having a love relationship with God. We think of David, the mighty warrior and shepherd king who sang and wrote of his love for you and had pledged his love to you. And Lord, as we learn and we continue to heap up knowledge, Lord, I pray that it would not be uh, breeding in us pride and puffing us up, but it would be moving us to acts of good, good works, good things, Lord, that we'd be known in the community for our faith and our good works. And Father, I, I also pray that, that we as a group would not just sing to you uh, empty words, Lord. But our love for you would be demonstrated in the keeping of your commandments. Your primary uh, and main commandment, Lord, being to love our neighbor as ourself. That our love for others would be um, the mark of our true love for you, Lord. So take this study time, Lord. Teach us about you. Teach us about ourselves. Teach us about what your desire is for the church. And I pray this in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. All right, Titus chapter 1. I love his name. I don't know why. It's like a good name for an ant, like a dog or something like that. This is my dog, Titus. I don't, he would, he's going to get me for that when, in heaven when I meet him. Are you the guy that said that in the sermon? Yeah, that was me. I, I just like names. Uh, Titus chapter 1. I, I titled the sermon, or the, actually the series, Getting our ducks in a row. Have you ever said that to somebody? I just got to get my ducks in a row. Or you really need to get your ducks in a row. What does that mean? Well, it comes from not just the animal world with little ducklings all lined up behind the mama duck. But some people say really that saying goes back to the days when they didn't have the automatic machines that set up the bowling pins. And the bowling pins, the narrow, tall bowling pins kind of resembled a duck. And they called them ducks. And so before you had a machine that did that, when you went bowling, a person had the job of lining up all of the ducks, getting them all 
organized and ordered for the next person to roll the ball down. So that's where the saying, getting our ducks in a row, comes from. And, and it's very hard to, to uh, do a whole lot if your ducks are not in a row. Uh, scattered, things out of order, things willy-nilly. And so in our lives, we recognize there's a time, you know, I just got to get, I got to get things in order before I can move on. True or not true? True. Church is the same way. There comes a time where we'd love to evangelize, we'd love to do this, we'd love to do that, but first things first in the house of God. And that means getting our ducks in a row. That was the issue that Titus faced, uh, given this task by the Apostle Paul. They had, uh, at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in prison. And many people believe that he was released from that imprisonment, went on to continue to minister in other places, and then eventually he and Titus made their way through the island in the Mediterranean Sea called the island of Crete, south of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. And he and uh, Paul and Titus spent some time there. Well, Paul moved on and left Titus behind. And chapter 1, if you just look at it real quick, says, uh, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. So that was Titus's job, to get things, to get all the ducks in a row there in Crete. Now, the church had been around in Crete for a while. It was probably planted uh, there not too long after Pentecost. People from Crete had been there in Jerusalem for Pentecost. The church probably had been planted previously, but they were really struggling. There were a lot of insubordinate people, uh, people that would just not line up their lives with the gospel. And it was causing a great deal of difficulty. They lacked good leadership. Uh, They lacked maybe any leadership. It was somewhat of an anarchy in the church. Where there was no recognized uh, leadership, at least no healthy recognized leadership. So what are the things that we see in this letter as a whole, this very personal letter to Titus? Uh, We see a tremendous emphasis on teaching. Good teaching. And I hope you understand that when I say good teaching... It just doesn't mean well-presented. A person can present a very good teaching from a a technical standpoint that can be full of lies. So when I say good teaching, what I mean is it's founded firmly in God's Word. So good teaching and then uh, good leadership is part of that too. Uh, The other thing that he has to get in line is good leadership, good teaching, and the result of that is good works. So those are the three main things we'll look at in the book, this, this short book, three chapters that, uh, of Titus. With that said, chapter uh, 1, verse 1 begins with the author, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now stop right there, because Paul is a master of the run-on sentence. And he's already, I'm sitting here going, I'm already lost. Uh, Well, let's start with the beginning, Paul. I think we know enough at this point about who the Apostle Paul is, was, and his testimony, the way he was saved on the Damascus Road. Uh, A brilliant man. His teacher said just one problem with the Apostle Paul, couldn't keep him in enough books. A real scholar, a real student, uh, progressing in the Hebrew, in the Jewish faith and tradition, and radically transformed by God on the, on the Damascus Road, heading to Damascus to take uh, Christians 
prisoner and bring them back to Jerusalem. And God stopped them in his tracks. And some of you, God has stopped you in your tracks and changed his identity. Look at the next thing he says. Paul, how does he identify himself? A bondservant of God. We like to identify ourselves by all the names, or the, the letters after our name. Steve, a PhD, although I am not, or whatever. Uh, whatever names, uh, letters come after our name. And, and Paul just keeps it real simple, because this is the first thing, the first duck in your life that you've got to get in a row is who you are. You've got to, how can you go on to do anything else until you know who you are? And Paul makes it really clear. We are servants of the Most High God. We have been bought for a price. Our lives are not our own. And Paul understood that. He said, I am a slave of God. Now, that's not, in our culture, terrible connotation. But not always. There was a, in the Old Testament, you sometimes became a slave because you got into debt to somebody. And you began to work off your debt by working for them. But you could only do it, uh, you had to be released after, the, after six years. You had to be released in, in the seventh year from your slavery. You couldn't be held longer than that as a Hebrew a slave of a Hebrew owner. But some people said, hey, this is a good deal. I like being your slave. I want to continue to, this is the best um, it's ever been for me. You really take good care of me. There's a reciprocal, in, in, in the slavery as they would have understood it, there's a reciprocal relationship there. The master takes care of the slave and his family, providing for them. And in return, the slave provides labor for the master. And so when he says, a bondservant of God, he doesn't say that with a negative connotation. He's very proud of that. I'm proud to be a servant in the house of God. It's who I am. And that makes me, what it, what it says to me is, I, I am most satisfied when my master is happy. That's what, that's what makes me happy when my master is happy. That's, that's what a slave would say. So, but not only that, I'm a bondservant of God, uh, but I'm also an apostle of Jesus Christ, sort of a diplomat, one who is sent on behalf of another. I'm a diplomat. I represent Jesus Christ. Wherever I go, I'm an ambassador. I'm a, I'm a representative. How about you? Do you recognize that, that church that who you are isn't just who you are on Sundays and then you get to be you again through the week and then Sunday you become somebody. You're an apostle. You're one who is sent. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about that. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, begging people to be reconciled to him. So we all, we re, because we go by the name Christian, we represent him. So you might be uh, an apostle to your family, an apostle in your workplace, an apostle, uh, you know, on, on the soccer field or here or there. You're one who's sent. You're supposed to be there because you may be the only Christ they see. You may be the only thing of God. They've heard all kinds of things from people about what God is like. But I pray that they would truly see what he's like from your life. Something to consider. An apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect or, or for this purpose, to bring faith, to encourage faith in God's people, those God has chosen, and that they would be able to acknowledge or to know the truth. What a great purpose in life. You know, I, 
there was a time when, when I was all, when shoeing horses was the thing I was about, when I worked as a horseshoer, and that was sort of what I was about, that was my identity, and then horseshoeing became just something that supported my ministry habit. Just became an opportunity to meet people to tell them about Jesus. And it was, I still wanted to do the best job I could. Matter of fact, even better because I was representing Christ now in my life. But what it gave me was opportunity to teach people about the truth. It was, you know, shoeing horses is a great thing to do. It's a, I enjoyed that tremendously, but it wasn't the ultimate thing that I did. The ultimate thing that I did is while I was doing that, I was getting to talk to people about truth. And you get that same opportunity to be someone who leads other people and helps them to understand that the truth is that the truth that accords with godliness. It lines up with being godly and a godly life. Verse 2 says, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. A couple of important things. When we talk about hope, oftentimes hope is connected to uncertainty, isn't it? I hope I get the raise. I hope she says yes. I, I hope this happens. I hope that happens. We, but we hope because we don't know for sure. We're not certain. But hope in the Bible is, is actually the opposite. It's combined with a tremendous amount of certainty. It's a certain expectation of something that's going to happen just hasn't happened yet. That's why you have to hope for it because you haven't seen it yet. But you know it's going to happen. Why do you know it's going to happen because God can't lie. Not just that he, that he doesn't lie. You have to understand this about God. This is why we put so much emphasis on his word. See, some of you know people, their word isn't worth much, is it? They tell you they're going to do something, and they don't do it. They say they're all about something, and they're really not. They say they're going to do it, and, and it doesn't come through. People's word, not always so good, is it? But God's word is perfect. His word is flawless. And not only that he doesn't lie, he couldn't. He can't. He cannot lie. So if you read it from the word of God, you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. Jesus Christ is coming back. And we hope for it, not because we wonder, and sometimes we do wonder, is he really coming back? You know, now would be a good time, uh, but not yet, because we still know people that need to be saved. But we hope for it. We, we know it's coming. What is it that Paul is talking about here? What's all this boiling down to for people? What's the hope that God can't lie about? That he promised uh, before time began? That, that he, this is what he uh, determined to do? It's about eternal life. Eternity is a long time, isn't it, folks? Eternity is a very long time. And everybody, listen closely, everybody lives eternally. Everybody. Some live on in eternal life with God. They are one with God. They are, we hopefully are um, living in the light, living connected to love, to truth, all of that. But there are those that will live eternally apart from God. Think about what it means to be apart from light. Absolute darkness. Think about what it means to be apart from truth. Think about what it means to be apart from love. That's punishment in and of itself. 
to be not just like I have some, but none. Outer darkness. And Paul says, this is what I want to bring to people. The hope, the certainty that you can have not eternal destruction. You're, you're a, a soul that lives on in, in a separated state from God. But eternal life. Eternity is a long time. You better be really persuaded. If you're here this morning and you're rejecting God, uh, you don't believe in Him, you don't uh, want to accept Christ as your Savior, I hope you're really certain. Because eternity is a long time to wager that, isn't it? And we have so much proof, so much proof of God's Word through fulfilled prophecies, through archaeology. And so we're going to have a video in a couple of months on evidence that, that demonstrates the certainty of the Bible. I suggest you come. Because there's so much certainty and evidence around the Word of God that, uh, that I believe that my hope, my, uh, my honest and certain expectation of eternal life lies not in my works, but in the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Period. Everything else is icing on the cake. So he has due time, verse 3, manifest his word through preaching. Tracks are good and videos are good. Preaching is how he made these things known, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Keep a note on that. We'll come back to that. Of God our Savior. So who's the letter to? Verse 4 says to Titus, a true son in our common faith so who is titus we don't know a whole lot about him uh, we know some his name shows up a lot in second corinthians he was on a special mission there to corinth uh, we know he had uh, very much the character of paul he cared greatly about the people in corinth and went there they didn't have to twist his arm to go he wanted to go and uh, he was a, a laborer with paul much like young timothy uh, titus was in a similar role but he was Greek. He wasn't Jewish like Paul. So, but he says, you know, in our common faith, you're a true son. Not a foreigner, but you're, you're like family. Grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, wait, wait, wait a second. Just, just back previously, he said God was our Savior. And now he says that the Lord Jesus is our Savior. Well, which is it? Is that a contradiction? Is that a contradiction? No, it's not a contradiction. Who saves us, Christ or God? Yes. Absolutely. I don't know, third base, both of them. Actually, a little commentary on this, one of my favorite passages, I've already quoted it a little bit here. But in 2 Corinthians 5, you want to see how it works, here's how it works. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, uh, let's see here. Verse 19 says, that is, that God was in Christ, reconciling us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So how did it work? When Christ hung on the cross, God was in him. God was in him, reconciling the world. They did it together. They did it together. So, they're both uh, our Savior. And, and that's what we needed, a Savior. So, verse 5 gives us, now we begin, that was the introduction to the letter, the, uh, the salutation. And now, verse 5, we actually get into the letter. Paul reminds Titus of his purpose. 
For this reason, I left you, uh, left you behind temporarily in Crete. Uh, one more thing about Crete. A lot of the Greek myths that you're familiar with come out of Crete. It was known as the, the uh, island of many cities. There's a lot of cities there. Uh, the Minotaur. You ever heard of the Minotaur? King Minos, the ancient, who was supposed to be the, the son of Zeus. Uh, that all surrounds Crete. Icarus and Daedalus, the one who flew to, too close to the sun and his wax wings melted. Uh, maybe you, you, I'd learned all this stuff in school. Uh, anyway, that all centers around the island of Crete. We'll also learn at the at, later on in this chapter that Cretans had a bad reputation. Years ago, we studied 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and the Corinthians were so known uh, for their sexual immorality that to be sexually immoral was said to be Corinthianizing. You were a Corinthian. That, their name got connected to that practice, that, that immoral practice. Well, the Cretans, to Cretize or to be a Cretan, was to be a, a liar and a savage. That's the reputation they had. And it's in this island that a church is planted. In this place where people were, were known for lying and, and just being generally um, mean toward one another. So he says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. So to set in order is where we get the word orthopedics, to set a broken bone. So you've got to get some things lined up uh, that, didn't, that I didn't get to complete, that Paul didn't get to complete uh, when he was there. Set in order these things that are lacking. Now I wonder, uh, he has to remind him of this, I wonder if Titus, if somehow Paul had gotten word that uh, maybe Titus was getting frustrated with the people there. Maybe he wanted to leave. We don't know that for sure. But he has to remind him, hey, that's why I left you there. Maybe these people are too hard to work with, God. I need to get out of here. No, that's why I left you there. You know, a lot of pastors get frustrated with their churches. Not me. But it's other friends of mine. No, uh, pastors get frustrated with people. And God reminds Titus, no, that's why you're there. Because people need you. They need your help to get things, to get their ducks in a row. You know, church is, is, well, he goes on to say, not just getting things in order. Well, the first thing is we need to appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. This is what Paul had told him. So he's telling Titus, now carry it out. Get to it. The church is not a leaderless movement. A lot of people in our, it's a very American culture thing to say, well, you know, as a matter of fact, the Lutheran church has the banner out front. They're doing some, some Doubting Thomas series on, uh, on Sunday evenings. And it says, you know, Jesus, I, I, can, I love, but I don't like organized religion. You know, something like that. Well, do you like disorganized religion? That's even worse. I don't like that either. Uh, I don't like religion either, you know. Uh, but there, sometimes we think that to, to, uh, for the Spirit of God to move, it's got to be, you know, free and all these things that we don't we can't have any leadership in the church and uh and you know you got to have a, a holy spirit hoedown to for you know for the spirit no god works best the spirit of god works best when there is order this is why in you know you can have too much order too i mean so that there's no room uh, and that's the the opposite sin i think but paul writes to the corinthians he says let everything be done decently and in order 
There, there's, and so part of that order is that there is recognized leadership in the church. The, the Occupy movement was a leaderless movement. How are they doing? I think it's currently unoccupied. But leaderless movements uh, don't do well. Eventually, somebody has to surface. I remember when the, the Occupy movement in Charlottesville was happening and they, you know, City Hall was getting involved and somebody had to represent them. Well, that's a leader. They had to eventually get to the point of appointing leaders. And so uh, in the church, leadership is not a bad thing. Leadership, leaders can be ungodly. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Too often, we human beings, uh, we reject the abuses of a thing by rejecting the thing itself. And I understand that. So because uh, church leadership has been abusive and has been corrupt in some ways, well, we do better without leadership. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Because Paul tells Titus, I I need you to appoint elders, it's plural, in every city. There were a lot of cities and they weren't elected. Titus had the, the role of appointing them. But Titus, be careful. You want, first duck you've got to get in a row is you've got to have good leadership. You've got to know who's uh, leading uh, in the organization that you're, you're part of. The body of Christ is a wonderful, living, active, breathing organism. And organization, is your body organized? Highly. Your body is highly organized. Ask anybody who studied science. Your body's highly organized. And that's what gives you the freedom to do the things you do. The body of Christ, when it's organized and when it's running well, operates the best. And who's the head? Christ. Christ is the head of the body. We've got to know that. And we'll talk about that as we go on here. So appointing a leadership, not just any leadership, not just because... There needs to be a seat filled, not just because somebody tithes the most, not just because somebody is the loudest at the meetings, but here are the things that Titus is told to look for to guarantee and assure good leadership in the church. And and as I go through this, I want to make one little observation. I think we will agree as we go through this that what Paul, as Paul lays out these characteristics, um, that he has men in mind. And I don't think you'll argue with that. I think we'll all be agree, able to agree that as Paul lists these things out, he has men in mind for the leadership role. And, and that's a tremendous issue of contention in our culture, in our society today. Uh, and, I, and I understand that. The question is, maybe that was just cultural. And that the culture in that day, that, that somehow uh, God knew that that was the culture and that, so that was okay, but now our culture has changed and so now maybe... That changes too. Uh, and, and this is important. Why? Because again, we're talking about getting our ducks in a row. And if we get our ducks in a row, we've got to know how things work and how they work the best. I, I drive a car. I drive it forward best. I can drive to Charlottesville in reverse, but it ain't going to be pretty. Right? So things will work backwards, but I, I, I guarantee you they don't work the best the most ideal. Now, culturally speaking, now here's the first problem with that argument, and I'm not going to get into this. I just want you to know where my heart is, where the heart of our church is, because at Calvary Chapel, I don't think you would argue that women are highly honored. We had three of them up here singing this morning. 
I think women are, and, and biblically, there's an equality. Matter of fact, the, Peter tells the, the husbands to honor their wives. And the, the women uh, deserve to be honored, deserve to be cared for. But in Ephesians 5, the, the passage on marriage, Paul says, just as the man is the head of woman, so is Christ the head of church, the church. So if it's just cultural for man to be the head of woman, then it's just cultural for Christ to be head of the church. And then we can also go back to Genesis and talk about, you know, God created Adam, then created Eve as a helper. And so that's why when it comes to the church, it's not, trust me, look, it's not patriarchy that people reject. It's the abuse of it. When patriarchy works well, it is beautiful. And trust me, women embrace that. I think guys, and guys, pay close attention as we go through this. Uh, This is what women are looking for in a man. This is what God is looking for in a man. So as we talk about leadership in the church, I also want to talk about your homes, guys, and what it means. This is a picture of godly manness. A picture of godly manness. Are you ready? Here's what it looks like. If a man is blameless, count me out there, pastor. Uh, I've sinned. No, this is not sinless. Blameless means that there's nothing hidden There's nothing that can be pinned on you. There's nothing that's uh, coercive. You're an open book. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, an elder in the church has to understand commitment and loyalty. When the church knows that the elder is committed to that flock, they, they rest in that. They under, they're not, I, I met a couple sitting right in here. First time I met them, they, they, they were looking at coming to Calvary Chapel. They said, Pastor, um, we've been in a lot of churches, and all, oftentimes the pastor leaves in a couple of years. Are you going to leave in a couple of years? Because churches have this theory that, well, you know, pastors get stale, uh, and, and it's time for them to move on, get new leadership in and, and all that. Um, no, I, I'm not leaving till the Lord calls me. To go somewhere else. Not, not because I'm frustrated or bored. or you, This is our flock. This is our family. And, and it's not healthy, I think, for that to happen. Um, but So he's the husband of one wife. He's a one-woman man. And she, the church or the bride, rests in that. Knowing that he doesn't have wandering eyes or entertaining other things. A one-woman man. Having faithful children. Not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So the gospel lived in this man's life actually reaches down even to the place of his children, that they're believers. And he's lived in such a way, he's, he's been able to disciple. It, the word uh, dissipation, you know, children accused of dissipation. I've never had someone to uh, come to me and say, Pastor, your children are dissipating. What does that mean? I don't know. Uh, dissipation uh, it, it's the same word used as the prodigal son. When the prodigal, he's basically um, living a, a party lifestyle, a ne'er-do-well is this word, dissipation, uh, living uh, for what he can get and, and giving nothing in return to the home or to the family. So this, not having children that are accused of, of selfish, riotous, partying, uh, laziness, lifestyle living. And this stuff doesn't happen by accident. This is what we're looking at at the elder. And the, the second word, by the way, insubordination, is um, 
unruly. They're, they're out of control. There's no uh, sense of uh, willingness to teach them how the family works, to participate and to be part, uh, do their part in the family. There's no discipline. You know, part of being a pastor is discipline, discipling. And so this is all proved out in the elder's home first. The, the home is the smallest flock, the smallest churches right there in that house. Now look, if we, raise the, if we lower the bar at the leadership level, then what happens to the rest of the church? We start out with the bar down here. So the bar for elders is very high. So it, it, it has an impact. This is a guy who understands how to disciple his children lovingly, gently. Don't, this is not a guy who says, kids, I'm a pastor. You're pastor's kids. You better behave. This reflects poorly on me. My son and daughter, that's never, never, never do I say that. Never. They serve the Lord. And my job is to show them, disciple them, teach them how. Teach them what God wants from them. Teach them what, how to live for him. And to, to help them work that out. Disciplining when necessary. Uh, discipling. Even with my wife. Same thing. We have that relationship where we can disciple one another. And this is all demonstrated in the context of the home. Verse 7, for a bishop, now here's the qualifications or the, the things that are looked for. By the way, elder and bishop, elder means someone who is mature and a person who's got a level of maturity. The description of the job, so that's the title, the job is bishop, an overseer. The elder is an overseer. They're interchangeable, not two separate things. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, recognizing a steward is someone who, who uh, takes care of the house for somebody else. How many of you have had babysitters recently? you got a babysitter comes in the house, watches the kids. What if you left and the babysitter said, all right, now we get to do what we want. You know, they said bedtime is this and don't feed them that. And, but who cares? They're not here now. Let's do it our way, you know. What would you do with that babysitter? Would you hire him back? No way, not if you found out. <laughs> because you recognize they're supposed to be doing it your way. It's your house. The church is the house of God. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's God's church. Therefore, we stand on what he says. This is, we do it his way. Even if it doesn't make sense to me, even if I don't understand it, we do it his way. It's his house. I don't have the right to change that. A steward of God, not self-willed. Fathers, husbands, pay attention. Not self-willed. Willed. That means uh, it's a combination of two words, self and hedonistic, not someone who's just looking out for themselves. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. The godly husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church, putting his own needs way on the back burner. You put your family first, dad. You put your family first, husband. And then nobody argues about patriarchy. Right? Nobody says, well, I think women this and all that. When, when men live up to the gospel for their lives, nobody has a question. Nobody has a question. And women, is this true? Amen? Okay, thank you. That was, uh, okay, that's a couple of women. And some women go, I'm uh, not sure. Not convinced yet, pastor. Not convinced yet. Uh, does anybody have a sense we're not going to get through all of chapter 1? Not self-willed. It means that it's not all about you. 
or your opinion or what you want. That means you have to take stock. What's best for your family? What's best for the flock? Not just your own needs. Don't get married because of what you need, guys. Don't have kids because it's going to fulfill some need in your life. Trust me, it'll fulfill the need for you to learn how to be sacrificial. That's the need it'll fulfill. The need for you to get a second job, maybe. (laughs) Not quick-tempered. Guys, not quick-tempered. Don't fly off the handle. That just scares your kids, and it scares your wife, and it scares the church. Not greedy for money. You can figure that one out. But instead, hospitable. Someone who's kind to strangers, has a love for, for people, a lover of what is good. I like this one. Uh, sober-minded, sober-minded. Now, we know what it means to be sober as opposed to being drunk. When you are drunk, your thinking is very clouded. So to be sober-minded is to be clear-thinking. How do you think clearly? You know God's Word. God's Word helps you to think clearly about everything. So, guys, you got to know the Word of God. Be sober-minded just, meaning you don't have play favorites in the church, don't play favorites in the family, you're fair. Holy, does that describe you? Self-controlled, that's like an athlete who's in training. Someone who is in control of their life. They've, they've got their stuff together. They, they have a discipline about their life. Because, ha- look, having poor leadership in the church can really cause a mess Having elders that are self-centered or self-willed or greedy for money and all that stuff just causes a mess. So Titus, don't compromise on this. They have to be holy, self-controlled. And this is out of a culture. The Cretans are all liars and savages and lazy gluttons. So somehow, Titus, hang in there till you find some of these guys. And we pray in this, that somebody, that, that guys would take their role seriously. Seriously enough to say, you know what? Maybe God would use me to be an elder in the church. It's not wrong to desire that. And here's what we're getting down to. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. Too many pastors are letting go of the faithful word getting into this book or that book and that direction and this trend and that way. And, and, and I hope you understand that even as we talk about the, the issue of, of roles of men and women this morning, that all I'm trying to do is hold fast the faithful word. I don't have a personal agenda, um, but I, I want to hold fast to the faithful word and what God's word says because I trust that this is how he wants things to be worked out. Hold fast to the word, to the word of grace to the word of forgiveness, to the word of love. I want to hold fast to the faithful word as he has been taught. So the, the, the husband, the, the elder, has to be a learner, has to be willing to be taught. And then that he may be able to, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict, the back talkers. So part of the role of the elder is to exhort, which is to encourage, to challenge, and to convict to, to challenge people about what they believe, those who, those, especially those who are contradicting. So I think we're going to have to stop there uh, for this morning, and we'll pick up, which will actually be, I think that will actually be good, because um, 
We have Mother's Day in a couple of weeks, don't we? And so if you just, if you look down at chapter 2, you'll see that uh, relationships are another thing that has to be uh, put in order, uh, discipling in the church, and there'll be a real good opportunity for a Mother's Day message right there out of Titus chapter 2. So, are we together? Okay, should I expect a lot of emails today? Uh, Look, I have spent more time and energy thinking about studying on considering all of these issues, and I cannot come to any other conclusion than what I shared with you. If you want clarification on that, if you have an argument with that, then please just give me a call, send me an email. I'd love to talk to you about it further. Uh, Guys, I hope you're considering these things as you uh, are an elder or uh, a head in your own home, that this, don't give the gospel a bad name by being uh, a self-centered jerk to your family. Get your ducks in a row and get it right so your family can be healthy. Amen? Amen. I'm a guy, I can say that. All right, let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word this morning. I just pray for the men particularly this morning. I know the wives have been praying for many of the men in here, Lord. Just praying that we would become what you died to make us, Lord. That we would embrace um, godly leadership in our homes. Leadership that's sacrificial. Leadership that's Christ-like. Leadership that is, is not uh, self-centered or greedy or all about us, Lord. But um, leadership that, that passes on the things we hold important. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ to, in, into our children. And Father, we pray for the church. We pray that we would do things in a way that honors you, Lord. And that, um, that it would it just, again, it would bring you glory as, as people look on and see, not the mess, Lord, but that we would pay, take heed to your word and pay close attention to how you are trying to tell us uh, to live out uh, these truths. Father, bless this congregation in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and to his honor and to his glory, all God's people said, amen, amen. Joyce, we have a final song to uh, close with? Yes. And if there's any men, while we do the final song, if some of you guys want prayer, you know you've just been falling short and, and you're not afraid to say that, then come forward. Your wife will come with you because she's been praying for you too, right? Just come forward and, and let's just get uh, and pray for guys this morning.